Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. My guest today is James Lewis. Jim is an expert on international trade and diplomacy regarding technology and public policy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, where he is senior vice president and directs the Strategic Technology Program. Before joining CSIS, Jim was a member of the U.S. Foreign Service and Senior Executive Service, where he worked on regional security, military interventions and insurgency, conventional armed negotiations, technology transfer, encryption, internet security, space remote sensing, high-tech trade with China, sanctions, and internet policy. Through this work, Jim has developed groundbreaking policies on remote sensing, encryption, high-tech exports, and cybersecurity. In today's episode, we talk about many of these topics, including artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the impact of national security and global politics. This episode kicks off another year of policy and technology issues discussed as we head into 2023. Jim, welcome to Explain to Shane. It has been a pleasure to be your friend for so long and all the fun we've had with you over at CSIS and as I've come over here to AEI. But this is the first time I've had you on the podcast, so I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thanks for having me uh, on the show. (laughs) So you have a strong history in explaining, I live in the multiverse, the policy audiences and on national security. And you had a really good piece I loved recently. You talked about how national security is not just about weaponry or strong national defense, but it's also about the importance of economic strength of the nation. So, and you, you did have a piece in, on, at CSIS, which I highly encourage people to go look at your graph because your graph really did a great job of explaining this. But talk to us about the idea of how this relates to our current global challenges. So it starts with a quote from a British song that was actually when we and the British were scuffling over uh, who owned Vancouver and who owned Seattle. So it, it goes back a ways. But the thing that made me think about it was the conflict in Ukraine. The Russians are running out of PGMs. Warfare has changed. You need PGMs. You need UAVs. And for that, you need a tech industry. And the Europeans talk a lot about digital sovereignty and tech sovereignty. They can't afford it. Uh-huh. So you need you want you want defense, you want sovereignty, you need money. And what the paper talks about is there's there's good correlations between uh, certain kinds of regulation and killing innovation, particularly in Europe. So that was the thing is, I get that you want digital sovereignty, you just can't afford it. Yeah, and then the whole idea of the need for economic strength, and that I think is another area that we'll talk about later, is just, you know, how we're playing through that with our challenge with um, with China. And you mentioned that the World Bank data shows what happens to an economic strength as measured by national income when a country gets a policy wrong. So that's, knowing that we both spend a lot of time in this policy space, that's, that's a really important point. The linkages aren't clear in some ways because these are things that used to be kept separate. And one of the changes in the last, I'd say, decade is the merging of tech, policy, security. It doesn't work that way anymore. And the connection between things that used to be considered separate are now strongly connected and technology, economic strength, national security fall into that category. I think that's interesting that you bring that up because the State Department has recently kind of reconfigured some of the work it does in a combination of cyber and internet internet governance. And I think it's actually been a very good combination of taking 
the cybersecurity portfolio, which was separate from that and combining it. And I think the new ambassador is probably the perfect person to have right now in that space because he has not only the kinetic background, but understands Mm -hmm. the, the, the virtual issues that we need to be going forward. To their credit, I'd say Blinken and Sherman, the secretary and deputy secretary, really have good insight into this and really have a a clear understanding and know the tech world better than probably any secretary of state we've had before. So that helps. And they, this has been reorganization has been in the works for at least a couple of years. So I'm glad they finally brought it to fruition. It's, it's, it gives me promise. So let's talk about emerging technologies. I know that you've spent a lot of time in both the area of quantum and artificial intelligence, which I find infinitely fascinating. And I keep waiting for, I actually tried to use chat GPT this morning and it told me it was busy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, that's, if that's the way well, that's AI is going to go, yeah, that's it's probably not a good sign. But how do we see both AI and quantum impacting national security and global politics as we keep hearing about it? But are we getting prepared for it? So there's other different topics. I mean, they're both emerging technologies, but they're different. And quantum is easy because quantum, <laughs> quant- okay. it's, it's not easy. I try, the, oh God, the code you have to write to do quantum computing is really different from the code you have to do. for. I couldn't do it. But quantum's got two immediate effects on national security. The first is, as everyone knows, decryption. The Chinese, the Russians, others are recording encrypted data for later decryption when they have quantum computers, and it's possible. So we will see the whole nature of encryption and secrecy change. The example that I point to sometimes is Enigma and Ultra, the British program World War II. The Germans didn't know they were being read, and it was very costly for them. Probably one estimate is took a year or two off the war. And we could find ourselves in the same situation. Quantum is the one place where you could have a real technological surprise. The other area where quantum is interesting is quantum sensing. And this is being deployed, right? Uh, All of this is much closer than people might think. But quantum sensing could defeat stealth. It could change the nature of anti-submarine warfare by being able to detect things at new depths or find new patterns for detection. So I think quantum sensing, quantum decryption are the places where national security could be affected. We're doing okay on it, but so are the Chinese. So quantum breaks stealth. It could break stealth, yeah. Okay. Stealth, I was sitting next to a former chief of naval operations. The summary said that we now know that stealth has a shelf life. He thought it wouldn't be that useful by the end of it. Huh. No, as people... Didn't improve, we just roll out a new... Stealth bomber we were all excited about. You're asking me about the rationality of the defense budget. Okay. Well, uh, I don't, don't know. Do that. The, the, the podcast it doesn't have enough time for that. <laughs> well, you know, it. Uh, that was one four-star admiral's opinion. Perhaps he's wrong. AI is a little different. So I'm not as uh, excited about AI in part because it's been around for, for decades. I mean, it's called the Turing Prize because Alan Turing was working on AI in the 1950s. Right. But the ability to improve precision... Those are real military advantages and to provide a degree of automation that we haven't seen. So you can imagine high-speed, very precise, automated weapons driven by AI that will give you an advantage in combat. There's also a potential advantage in intelligence and in command and control. That tracks actually pretty closely, I think, to the commercial use, you know, the ability to organize masses of data and to find interesting patterns. 
and to queue them up. So AI, not a new thing. It's been around for a long time, but it will possibly change as it becomes more autonomous, as it becomes capable of independent action. Please do not refer to uh, Terminator now. It's not a documentary. Um, <laughs> but you know the ability of AI to act autonomously, which we're starting to see in some things. And this is where you get all the excitement over lethal autonomous weapons. A machine will decide when to fire. Again, we've had that for a long time. I mean, if you look at the Patriot uh, air defense system, the time it takes for a human operator to identify the target, fire the, the missile, is too long at the rate things are traveling. So, so that's automated, but yeah. we'll see a lot more of that. Okay, so does that track in our in the national security of our network systems? Because I'm, I'm very concerned more back when we go back to just all the devices that we're connecting to things and this combination we have um, um, with just the civilian and, and military use. I realize there's some separation on the networks, but perpetually fear <laughs> that, you know, it's the toaster example or something to that ilk that's going to, you know, somebody gets in. Well, it, you know, my favorite example actually is Silicon Valley. And when Guilfoyle figures out he can save the world via the smart um, refrigerator. Are we being smart enough about how we're using all of this technology where we're, we've got this combination of compute to the edge and its connection into the networks? U.S. is actually doing better than most countries, which is amazing. But better might not be good enough because we're facing a wave of digital devices, all connected, global, smart, in some cases really dumb in other cases. And that will change the equation for cybersecurity in that the, the ability to defend these massive interconnected networks will be much, much harder. And the ability to attack them, particularly if you're using automated tools, will be much easier. So we're doing okay. I mean, a lot of the things that have been done in the last couple of years to make software more secure and to work on critical infrastructure and to build better partnerships with the private sector, all great stuff. But the tidal wave is coming. So I have gotten the sense that things are going better with CISA over at DHS as far as the collaboration with enterprise companies and government. You know, we used to have this kind of, it, this wall that didn't make a lot of sense because they, a lot of it was just like what they had control over. So we're, we're getting better at enterprise. Are we getting better at consumer? Well, consumers are probably, I'm not a big believer in consumer in general? action. Yeah, because, you know, tell grandma how to defeat the People's Liberation Army. Okay, maybe. We need to focus more on the big network operators and that's, and the big producers of information technology, including software. I think that's the sweet spot. And this is better. The National Security Council has done better. You know, people say we should teach people cyber hygiene. Okay, so for those listening in, your password should not be 123456, which is still the most common password in Amazing. the United States. I know. Incredible. And a big thank you from Xi Jinping. But, you know, getting people to change absent regulation. So build it into the device. It's and gotten means, more and more common. I deal with passwords. I feel like every day there's something that, you know, they and they've bought some externality that now wants yeah. to give me a code and I'm not sure if it's coming on my text or my, oh, I know. my email. And it just, it makes you not want to do whatever it was you were planning on doing. It, so it turns out to be one of the signal failures. We wrestled with it at the commercialization of the internet, but that authentication of identity turns out to be one of the signal failures. And I, I keep hoping we'll fix it in some way. But so far, it's actually gotten more complicated and more of a friction to using stuff than it should be. 
Is that because we still, and there's a part of our, we want to be disaggregated in our feeling for freedom versus centralized? Is that part of to do that? No, I think we haven't come up with the, the privacy people are not helpful when it comes to authentication of identity. I had one tell me that we didn't want strong authentication because there might be some poor kid out there who wanted to express his admiration for jihad and that would trigger the FBI, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, you know, but more importantly, it's the companies that bear their responsibility, the operators, the service providers, the producers. And until we get them to focus uh, and until we maybe, maybe upgrade the technology a little bit, I mean, I keep waiting for biometrics, you're starting to see progress. But there's still a lot of, you know, we'll have you do a password and then we'll get a code and then, you, you know, you'll, you'll recite the magic words. And we're, we're still at a complicated phase. Yeah, it's um, unfortunately the complications just keep compounding rather than figuring out a way to make it. That's the the mid the midterm approach to cybersecurity is make everything more complicated by layering on yet another defense. We've also talked a little bit about how you know Europe seemed to have missed out on four G telecommunications and the economy that the app economy that that created. Why why was that? What was it when you talked about the kind of signaling? They just didn't think that that was going to be a thing. You know the. They just and, and now they're kind of trying to catch up with 5G and the complications that's put in place. And my colleague, uh, Cleet Johnson, who I think you know. I do know Cleet. Yeah. yeah, Cleet. He just wrote a paper. We just sent it to our publications, which means it will emerge sometime next year. I look forward to reading it. Uh, uh, <laughs> he said, look, the Europeans were the winners in 2G, and they did okay in 3G, and they lost in 4G. And they're probably losing in 5G because they overregulate because they have an approach to, I am not anti-regulation. I think people who know me would find it funny to hear me complaining about regulation since I'm always saying we should regulate more when it comes to cybersecurity. But the European style of regulation gets in the way of innovation, gets in the way of adoption. The EU is also, it's sort of an imperfect nation state at best. You still have 27 different entities, each with their own different rules. It's a fragmented market. So between regulation and political fragmentation, the Europeans are at a disadvantage. Yeah, they, they continue to be. How do you feel about the most recent, the um, Digital Markets Act and the Digital Service Act? I feel like that just compounds some of the challenges. Well, and the, the part that bothers me is that, is that they want to share the pain with us. Right. And right. we're willing to apparently to talk about it at least. Yeah, it hasn't come. I think Maybe not in this administration, but in the next administration, whether Democratic or Republican, the issue of the extraterritorial application of European regulations will come up. Because right now, we don't have any say in Brussels' rules when it creates them, and then we're expected to observe them. What's that? What was that thing? No taxation without representation. Well, it's probably true for regulation. It's still well. on the DC license plates, at least some of them. Yeah. So um, there's a joke there, but we'll skip it. <laughs> no, but yeah, but I think that, you have a good point where they feel like I, I feel like their whole goal is to slow us down because they don't have the. I mean, the other thing you uh, didn't we, is the the investment that there just isn't this level of interest in investment in European technologies, which they can't seem to figure out their way around that. No, to to be fair to the Europeans, they have a really strong research base. And they have good entrepreneurs. But when that research, when the entrepreneur goes to turn the research into a commercial product, he immediately runs into a regulatory buzzsaw. And that's pretty much what kills it for them. This has been true for a long time. When they did their first privacy regulation, there was a restaurant in Stockholm that had a webcam focused on the street. 
they were forced to take it down because they didn't have consent from the passersby to take their picture. That kind of thing gets in the way. And so the numbers in the paper are unicorns. U.S. has the most. China has the second most. Europe and Israel have about the same. And Israel is, of course, 2% of Europe's population. So you hear from Europeans is, but you remember our history. It's like, okay, I get it. You know, 20th century wasn't very nice to you guys in part of your own making. But at some point, you have to get over it. And they have a regulatory culture that stifles innovation. So let's let's go to the other big... That was mean. I apologize to my And it's, I'm friends. fine with that. So China, are the are the all the trade sanctions and things that we're doing with China specifically around Huawei and security, is that is that having an effect? It is having an effect. You know, the Chinese aren't going to give up, as you can see from the table. They it's not that China is displacing the US, it's that China is displacing Europe. And they're at least for now on a path where that will continue. But if you talk, for example, in talking to Chinese acquaintances about the effect of the export control regulations on semiconductors. China originally thought they would achieve global status, near-peer status, by 2030. Now they think that's pushed out at least five years because of our rules. So it has a, it's not permanent. It's not forever. It doesn't guarantee the triumph of democracy, but they are having a positive effect. So what about their customer base? So one of my colleagues here, Claude Barfield, was asking me, he goes, so like the African clients of Huawei Care that they're now getting a level that is not the most sophisticated level? I, I said, probably not at this stage. Maybe it will make a difference in a couple of years. No, and so Huawei continues to, Huawei, by the way, any other company would have gone out of business. But if you have Uncle Xi as your uh, a helper, uh, you can you can hang in there. And they have a plan for coming back to being globally dominant. They thought they were going to dominate 5G. Now they hope to dominate cloud and 6G. And they are already dominant in developing markets right? because they come with money. They come with assistance. May not say it's the best technology in the world. It's pretty good. Yep. But if you're in a developing country and somebody comes in and says, I'll give you this for free or I'll give you this for a no-cost loan or I'll... I'll help you set it up. It's very attractive. So Huawei's business model has been really effective in Africa and amazingly in South America where they've got quite a foothold. Yep, I think that's, um, I was just over in Ethiopia for the Internet Governance Conference and you get there and you realize China's just done some brilliant things to, um, you know, things that, that their the Ethiopian government specifically probably wouldn't have spent their money on directly that the citizens very much enjoy. It's strange, it's things like parks. Like you see them out in you know, the parks on the weekends. So I think that's it's going to be a fascinating point to watch. And was in Addis Ababa at the African Union probably about three years ago. And they asked me about Huawei. They made a joke and we were riding the elevator up to the director's office. They said, be sure and speak clearly into the walls because you know our <laughs> building was built by China. And then they all burst out laughing. But they also asked me what I thought. And I said, look, you know, take the money. The Chinese show up with money. We don't. And you need, for the these countries, the number one priority is not security. It's development. Yep. So take the money. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the big issues while I was at this conference was cross-border data flow. And talking to the African countries, and they've had an idea up since 2014, which they have not supported without throughout the continent, on how they should manage their own data flow. And you realize part of their challenge is they just don't have the sophisticated 
uh, data flow that we see that's very enterprise driven. So they just you don't see a lot of money being spent in that area. So they still are at that level where baseline technology is, you know, getting that in place is very important. And the Chinese are willing to help. And, you know, until we change our minds and are also willing to help, maybe that will happen with the money that came in the CHIPS Act and some other things. Right now, if you're a poor country, uh, you have the choice of the Chinese with money or the Americans with a winning smile. (laughs) Well, that's probably a good place to stop. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to having you on the podcast in 2023 and continuing to have an an enjoyable relationship and, and continuing to work with you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.